Very central. My name is Dina Jabour, and I am one of the women shepherds here, and I'm also a member of the Chantilly Community Group. Our scripture reading this morning is the book of Obadiah, all of it. Don't worry, it's just one chapter. This is the vision that the sovereign Lord revealed to Obadiah concerning the land of Edom. We have heard a message from the Lord that an ambassador was sent to the nations to say, get ready, everyone, let's assemble our armies and attack Edom. The Lord says to Edom, I will cut you down to size among the nations. You will be greatly despised. You have been deceived by your own pride because you live in a rock fortress and make your home high in the mountains. Who can ever reach us way up here, you ask boastfully. But even if you soar as high as eagles and build your nest among the stars, I will bring you crashing down, says the Lord. If thieves came at night and robbed you, what a disaster awaits you. They would not take everything. Those who harvest grapes always leave a few for the poor. But your enemies will wipe you out completely. Every nook and cranny of Edom will be searched and looted. Every treasure will be found and taken. All your allies will turn against you. They will help to chase you from your land. They will promise you peace while plotting to deceive and destroy you. Your trusted friends will set traps for you, and you won't even know about it. At that time, not a single wise person will be left in the whole land of Edom, says the Lord. For on the mountains of Edom, I will destroy everyone who has understanding. The mightiest warriors of Teman will be terrified, and everyone on the mountains of Edom will be cut down in the slaughter. Because of the violence you did to your close relatives in Israel, you will be filled with shame and destroyed forever. When they were invaded, you stood aloof, refusing to help them. Foreign invaders carried off their wealth and cast lots to divide up Jerusalem, but you acted like one of Israel's enemies. You should not have gloated when they exiled your relatives to distant lands. You should not have rejoiced when the people of Judah suffered such misfortune. You should not have spoken arrogantly in that terrible time of trouble. You should not have plundered the land of Israel when they were suffering such calamity. You should not have gloated over their destruction when they were suffering such calamity. You should not have seized their wealth when they were suffering such calamity. You should not have stood at the crossroads killing those who tried to escape. You should not have captured the survivors and handed them over in their terrible time of trouble. The day is near when I, the Lord, will judge all godless nations— as you have done to Israel, so it will be done to you. All your evil deeds will fall back on your own heads. Just as you swallowed up my people on my holy mountain, so you and the surrounding nations will swallow the punishment I pour out on you. Yes, all you nations will drink and stagger and disappear from history. But Jerusalem will become a refuge for those who escape. It will be a holy place, and the people of Israel will come back to reclaim their inheritance." The people of Israel will be a raging fire, and Edom a field of dry stubble. The descendants of Joseph will be a flame roaring across the field, devouring everything. There will be no survivors in Edom. I, the Lord, have spoken. Then my people living in the Negev will occupy the mountains of Edom. Those living in the foothills of Judah will possess the Philistine plains and take over the fields of Ephraim and Samaria and the people of Benjamin will occupy the land of Gilead. The exiles of Israel will return to their land and occupy the Phoenician coast as far north as Zarephath. The captives from Jerusalem exiled to the north will return home and resettle the towns of the Negev. 
those who have been rescued will go up to Mount Zion in Jerusalem to rule over the mountains of Edom, and the Lord himself will be king. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Christ Central Church. I'm going to come closer to you because you guys are so far away. All right. I feel more closer to you as I come. Um, we're continuing in our 12 Minor Prophets series, and today we're in uh, the fourth prophet, Obadiah, and as Dina read for us, it's the entire book. And oftentimes, of all the minor prophets, Obadiah is the shortest one, with one chapter and 21 verses. And I would venture to guess, you probably never really heard of our sermon in Obadiah, or did not even know where it was. As you were, I know these days we could find it easy on our phones, but oftentimes you probably wondered, where is Obadiah? Um, and someone would say, where is Obadiah in the Bible? And they'll say, Obadiah. Okay, sorry, I'm sorry. Bad joke. <laughs> Terrible joke uh, to start, but just want to keep you engaged as we start this morning. As you read a long text, Obadiah is in the Bible, in fact. Not over there. Okay, I'll stop. It's a minor prophet, not because it lacks the importance, uh, not because it's really short in the Bible, only it's minor prophet just because it's just length is short, but it has uh, important message for us. It is an important message, especially in today's text, speaks against Israel's adversary, Edom, and will find God's justice in the midst of that. When my son was a little child, we, I used to take him out to the playground, and there's a lot of joys that come with watching your child play in the playground um, as they explore what it means to climb this stairs to get to the slide, and they slide down, and you hear the laughter, you get the outside, the vitamin Ds, and all this stuff. But also, there's a concern, as a little child goes out to play, concern of hitting something, or tripping over air as they fall onto the ground. But of course, one of the biggest fears that I would have was to see a bigger boys, a bullies, on the playground that would accidentally, not intentionally at times, push your child down. And when you see those things happen as a father, your adrenaline kicks into gear and you say, well, how dare you do that to my son? I'm going to push you as well. And you're much bigger than them. You want to do those things uh, because you want to come to the defense of your child. Well, when we read Obadiah today, we get that sense of righteous anger and justice from God on full display. You see, God here is speaking not to Israelites here today. There's a break in the prophets against Israel here. But now today, when we read the book of Obadiah, God's justice and anger is directed at Edom, someone else, someone that is actually, in fact, persecuting and oppressing the people of God. And oftentimes, as we've seen, it was the Israelites that are the recipients of their own actions of forsaking the relationship with God, but today we see, as these people are facing the consequences of those actions, there are the Edomites, the Edom, that are oppressing the people of God as they are running away from their exiled invaders. And as we read these words, we see the justice of God raining down upon the Israelites as they see Edomites oppressing them. And here God says, I see this. I see the injustice being done, and this is an encouragement given to Israel in light of what is happening to them. Now, you see a lot of undercurrents here, and I could not help but to wrestle with this text as we watch in horror of what's happening in the Middle East. And I'm not making a political statement, but plea for humanity and plea for justice. 
as we hear the brutal death and atrocities of Hamas militant terrorist groups. But we also see many innocent who suffer at the retaliatory strikes and the ill treatment of Palestinians. We grieve and we long for justice in both ways. We also long for protection of the innocent, the marginalized, and often forgotten people on the both sides of the conflict, often who suffer as a result of terrorism as well as oppressive policies. As one person wrote, you could oppose Israeli government's treatment of occupied terrorists as well as oppose Hamas terrorists as evil. And all of us as God's people should have this outrage against injustice, period. Frustration and anger as sin, period. And as another writer wrote about what is happening, the sheer terror and atrocity cannot help but to be described as demonic. People are under the control of sin and demonic in their actions. In light of this, we turn to Obadiah with hope. The God of the universe is watching, and the judgment of God will rain down on the brutality, oppression, and death of the many innocent as we cry, How long, O Lord? How long? And this isn't just limited to Middle East in just the conflict that we see today, but we also see in the battlefronts of the Eastern Europe, and also in our own nation in the form of racial injustice. So as we see God's justice on display, we need to get a better grasp of what is the relationship between Edom and Israel as we delve in. Edom, also known as Seir or Hor or Esau, and we'll get back to Esau in a little bit, was a territory bordering Judah with the southern kingdom of the east and south at the time. This is the east of the Jordan River, extended southward towards the borders of Moab, um, a country in the down south. Edom was known for two things, and we'll see why that's important because this prophecy speaks against it in a little bit. First was its location. Edom's location was in a great trade route between Syria and Egypt, and as we have seen throughout the history, when you're in a trade route, you get the benefits of all the wisdom as well as the wealth that comes in, and Edom benefited off of that. Second, Edom was also known for security, characterized by the red sandstone cliffs that rise more than 5,000 feet above the sea level. This was actually unknown to the modern world at the time until the Swiss explorer Johann Ludwig Burckhardt in 1912. He faked, he basically lied his way into the region, heavily guarded by the locals, and reintroduced this wonder down you and I know to the world, and that is Petra. This is where the, the famous right, Indiana Jones and Last Crusade takes place. The Petra is where the Edom was, once heavily fortified city of the Edomites. In the scripture, when you look in the Old Testament, you see the introduction of Edom comes in Genesis chapter 32 with the introduction of Jacob and Esau, where he says, Then Jacob sent messenger ahead of brother Esau, who was living in the region of Seir, the land of Edom. And we know that Esau was older brother of Jacob, important factor considering the judgment later is to the forefather of the Edomites, hence the Edom is also known as Esau. And later on, when Israelites are coming out of the Exodus, going to the promised land, the Edomites refuse them to pass through, saying, you shall not pass through. And Moses gives a promise of consequence that is to come. 
In 2 Samuel 8, King David conquers Edom, and from that time on, until the reign of Solomon, Edomites were subject to their brethren, descended of Jacob. But in this time, as we turn into Obadiah, we see Edom as an independent nation who has turned his back against their younger brother once again, as the Judah now is facing the conquerors from Babylon, and now as they're being exploited, as they're being exiled, Edom also participates in this way, and the prophet Obadiah sends judgment upon them. Upon this backdrop, I know that's a lot of history lessons there, but we need to know exactly where we are to get to this, because what we see here of God's justice is God justice in the Edomite is complete, but also we see even through that, God's grace and mercy is complete as well. So first thing we see in light of all this backdrop is that God's justice is complete. When I was a younger uh, child, um, I used to love playing out in the playground. And there's one rule that we had to follow. One rule was to not get in the way of the older children. Right? And oftentimes, um, our playground was so small where all the older kids played soccer and all the younger kids played in dirt. And I was the one who played in the dirt. And oftentimes, as you play in the dirt, we don't know where the soccer field ends when the dirt begins. And of course, I often went into venture into the soccer field. And guess what happened? An older kid kicked the ball, hit me right in the face. And you would think, man, that older kid should apologize, but that's not how it works, right? What happened was I should have gotten out of the way. So this kid started surrounding me and saying, how dare you get in my way of soccer? And I was facing the consequences of my inaction, right? Not getting out of the way, thinking I am going to be Uh, get beaten up up by all these older brothers. In the corner of my eye, I saw my sister, all 411 of her, swirling a backpack over her head, coming to my rescue, hitting every single boy on the way there and rescuing me out of the danger at hand. She showed me what justice was all about. (laughs) Well, if you have the picture of someone coming to your rescue, we see God's justice on full display here against God's chosen. And here Obadiah says, Edom, you will, you will face God's justice, not only because you have exploited uh, Israel, but this is what God says my justice will be against. First judgment that Edom is facing is judgment against the pride. We see in verse 2, this is what the Edomites felt like. They said, we have been deceived by your own pride, it says, because you live in rock fortresses and make your home high in the mountains. You see, Edom's pride and self-deception of safety was found upon their confidence in where they were. As we talked about before, where the Petra was, they were in the mountain ranges, surrounded by as mountain ranges that were high as 5,000 feet above the sea level. This reality made Edom boast Who could ever reach reach us from up here? No one can come to us. Furthermore, their pride in their own nation and security came from their wealth as well as the wisdom that came as a result of being in the key trade route. That's what we read in verse 7 through uh, 5 through 9, where they say those who harvest grave, there's abundance of harvest here. There's verse 6, talks about every treasure will be found and taken, meaning there's abundance of treasure there as a result of the trade. And because of the location of Edom, they had many allies who needed their services, most trusted friends. And because of the trade route, they linked Egypt for Syria at the time, there lots of wisdom. The, the wisdom of the world was concentrated on Edom. And many were hired as mightiest warriors 
to protect this land of Edom. And that's why we read God going after each one of their confidence, false pride. And before we dismiss Edomites as they're delusional, how dare they think this way, the historical evidence shows us we often rely on those things too. We often rely on our own human ability to protect our own wealth, our own well-being, and our nation even. If you study the history of World War II, Switzerland was only a nation that was never conquered by Germany, the Axis power. And you probably wonder why. And some of us, we recognize that Switzerland was a neutral nation. And that's what we think. But what we find in the history is that Switzerland was a very difficult place to conquer. Why? First of all, they were surrounded by the mountain of Alps. They created a logistical challenge for any invasion. In an article titled, The Swiss Were Prepared to Fight Against Fascism Until the End, in PBS, it writes, In 1940, Nazi invasion plan Operation Tenenbaum was not executed. The Oberst Hermann Bohm, which is a security officer at the time, wrote that invasion of Switzerland would be too costly because, not only because of the location where they were, but he also noticed that every man of Switzerland was armed and trained to shoot. This did not stop Gestapo from preparing the list of Swiss to be conquered, but they, they decided against conquering Switzerland because they recognized that every man was ready to fight. Sounds very similar to Edomites, don't they? Surrounded by mountain regions, logistical nightmare to conquer, and there's mighty warriors, wealth, ready to fight. And this power of Axis power did not conquer Switzerland. That's what Edom felt like. They were like, we cannot. There's no way we'll be conquered. No matter what we do, they will not be conquered. But that's not only the reason why God conquers and uh, brings judgment upon Edomites. The judgment is not only against their pride, but also against their hatred for their brethren. And that's what we see in Obadiah verses 10 and 14. The prophet gives us a framework for why the judgment comes upon Edomites. It says in verse 10, Because of the violence you did to your close relatives in Israel, as we talked about, Esau was an older brother and descendants of Esau, the Edomites. That's why God says you will be filled with shame and destroyed forever. When they were invaded, you stood aloof, refusing to help them. You should not have gloated when they exiled your relative distant lands. Verse 12. Verse 13, You should not have plundered the land of Israel. Not only they stood aloof, but they plundered the land of Israel after they were exiled. In verse 14, you should not have stood at the crossroads killing those who try to escape. What we see is that Edom was a literal brother nation of Israel and Jacob, and then they stood aloof when the calamity came upon their brethren. Not only so, you see the misfortune being added on. In verse 11, they stood aloof. Verse 12, they gloated, they boasted in distress. In verse 14, when they were escaping, they rounded up these Israelites and handed them over to the exiles. Notice the progression of the Eden's participation in the destruction of Jacob, Israel, at the hand of Babylonians. Not only they ignored the whole process, they're gloating and rejoicing, and they're like, okay, now we're going to help them too. They aided in persecution of the Israelites, handing them back over to Babylonians as they, they fled away from the exile. Edom's betrayal ran deep. It was a nation that was close to Israel, not only in terms of geographical, but in terms of their history and their lineage. Hence, God's action against them is complete. 
the justice of God rains down. And this is what God says in verse 4. I will bring you crashing down, says the Lord. In verse 5, they would not take um, they would take everything away from you. Your enemies will wipe you out completely. Verse 6, every treasure will be found and taken. Verse 7, all your allies will turn against you while plotting to deceive and destroy you. Verse 8, at the time, not a single wise person will be left in the whole land of Edom. Verse 9, the mightiest warriors of Timon will be terrified. Everyone on the mountains of Edom will be cut down in the slaughter. If you think about complete destruction, this is it. And if you ever wonder, did God just say this in Obadiah? And what really happened to it? If you look at the history of humanity, look at the history of Edom, do you know there's, um, we look at the history of Edom, we recognize God has fulfilled this promise already. We do not know of the modern historic end of Edom. As we only know that Edom lost its independence in 5th century BC. And we're told in the New Testament that Edom's region was called Idumea, a place where Herod the Great, the one who commits mass genocide of Judeans' sons, will come from. And that's it. Apart from fractions of people who could trace their lineage back to Edom, as well as some artifacts that remain, Edom as a nation is completely wiped out. The prophecy of Obadiah comes true. If you ever wonder, is Bible true? If you ever wonder and doubt, will God be faithful to the promises? Just look at Obadiah. There's no nation of Edom today. Edomites are completely destroyed. You know what this does to us? It gives us two things. First, it gives us hope. Hope that God's watching. That God's justice will be complete. When God returns, when God's justice is carried out, as promised in the book of Revelation, we all will stand before the Lord and will say, this is fear God. God's holy righteousness and God's holiness of the judgment will have to be answered for all the innocent blood and brutality we observe today. The hope that we have is God's justice will reign supreme. Second, what this does for us is that we now have a holy fear because God's justice demands for all of us to stand before God. Our account before God has to be given. All of us stand before before the Lord, the creator of heavens and the earth, and each one of us must give an account of how we have handled God's given world, the people and the privileges that we all have. We ought to have hope, but we ought to have holy fear when God's justice is complete. But that's not the only thing we see in this text, don't we? Not only do we see God's justice that is completed in Obadiah, but we also see God's grace that is completed in Obadiah. God's grace is complete in Obadiah. When I was in seminary, of course, as a seminary student, you have abundance of responsibilities and lack of funds, right? And I was on a healthy diet of McDonald's, Taco Bell, and Pizza Hut. And some of you may wonder, that's great. No, it's not, right? That's like, yeah, that's not good. Anyway, um, I was invited by one of our church members and say, um, Pastor, I would love to take you out to eat. And I said, okay, sure, why not? Like, let's go. Are we going to McDonald's today? Are we going to Taco Bell? Are we going to pizza? Like, no, no, just dress nice for a change. I said, what do you mean? Like, are you saying something about how I dress? Uh, and then come join me. And we went to this restaurant. And you know those places when you see it and you look at the menu, if there's no prices next to the menu item, you know it's expensive. You know, my hands started to shake, thinking like, I cannot pay for this thing. You know, as they come and they say, what do you want to drink? Say water, please. Only water. Um, 
But the person who invited me would say, he is with me. And said, you could order anything and everything on the menu. And I got the background pass to all that the person had to offer. I was included by association, simply invited. And that's how God's grace works. And that's what we see even in Obadiah as we delve into this text of God's justice on display, but God's grace also on display as well. Because not only does God's justice is aimed at Edom, but starting verse 15, we notice the judgment of God is turned towards all the nations. If you're reading through this and you're thinking like, well, thank God I'm not Edomite, you know? Well, I'm not like that. Thank God that I am not like that. We often think we're Israelites, right? We're like, we're good, you know? But are you really Israelite? We're not. And the scary thing is, verse 15, now the judgment of God not only is directed at Edomites, not only directed at Israelites, but it's directed at all of us. Verse 15 says, the day is near when I, the Lord, will judge all godless nations. As you have done to Israel, so it will be done to you. All you evil deeds will fall back on your own heads, just as you swallowed up my people on my holy mountains. So you and the surrounding nations will swallow the punishment I pour out onto you. Yes, all you nations will drink and stagger and disappear from history. You see, what we see in the judgment of Edom is a preview of the future judgment on the all nation who refuse to bow down to the Lord to come. And what we realize is that all, as we talked about before, will be under the judgment of God. And we find ourselves this morning standing before the Lord, Lord of the heavens, as we see the atrocities happening on both sides of the conflict in the Middle East. We are also called to give account for our own actions, our own convictions, or our own inactions before the Lord as well. And truthfully, when we examine our lives, if we're really honest with ourselves, we cannot help but to recognize that we are more like Edomites than not. We're often acting more in our own self-confidence, relying on our own self-knowledge, the background and the privileges that we have, the friendships and relationships that we hold on to, quite often my own conviction. And quite often, we act more like Edomites in how we simply don't care about others. How we often demand my own rights, my own justice. And oftentimes, we stand aloof when our own brothers and sisters are persecuted, receive injustice. We turn a blind eye and say, well, I'm not that. Don't involve me in that one. Well, I go to places where I feel comfortable I dare not step into places where I am uncomfortable. We often are like Edomites, standing aloof, gloating, waiting, rather than leaning in and learning. So here God declares to us, not only the Edomites are under God's judgment, for all of us, in fact, are headed towards God's judgment. So what's the hope, you say? Where is the grace of God? And that's what we see in verses 17 through 21. Because in the midst of this judgment that goes to Edom, God gives hope to Israel. And let's look at what it says. Verse 17, But as Edomites are judged, but Jerusalem will become a refuge for those who escape, 
you'll be a holy place. And people of Israel will come back to reclaim their inheritance. The people of Israel will be a raising fire and eat them a field of dry stubble. The descendants of Joseph will be a flame rolling across the field, devouring everything. There will be no survivor in Edom. I, the Lord, have spoken. And perhaps you may wonder, well, pastor, you said this is hope for us, but last time I checked, I'm not a Jew. <laughs> I venture to guess all of us are Gentiles, right? We're not Israelites by descendants. We're all more like, as we talked about, Edomites. So where is this hope coming from? And that's what we find in verse 21, where it says the Lord himself will be the king. Simply, God is saying, I am going to save my people. And in the Old Testament, the chosen people of God is Israelites. And why does God do that? In Romans chapter 19, 9, verse 13, Paul explains that. Simply, God says, I love Jacob, but I rejected Esau. Meaning, Jacob represented Israel, and God simply chose Israel to be his own son and daughters. God simply chose them out of people to be their own, and God promises this deliverance upon Israel, not because they're a righteous nation, not because they have all these things going for them, but simply God chose them. And to be included in God's family meant they have to be chosen, invited to come and be part of God's family. And that's what God gives in Obadiah to Israelites who are persecuted by Edomites, saying that I will continue to be faithful to you despite the persecution, despite the exile, I'll bring you back. And I'll pour my love upon you. Despite the Edomites that persecute you, I will restore you. So what is the hope for us? In the same book in Romans, this is what Paul writes for us. In chapter 11, verse 17 and 18. But some of these branches from Abraham's tree, some of the people of Israel have been broken off. And you Gentiles, speaking to all of us, who are branches from the wild olive tree have been grafted in. So now you also receive the blessing God has promised Abraham and his children, sharing in the rich nourishment from the root of God's special olive tree. But you must not brag about being grafted in to replace the branches that were broken off. You are just the branch, not the root. What Paul is saying here is the king who will reign over Jerusalem is Jesus himself. And we the Gentiles, those who place our faith in the Lord, those whom God has chosen, are engrafted in to become a spiritual Israelites, meaning you're implanted, intentionally moved out of where you were, adopted into the family of God. So when you are invited by God to come and join his family, you are the recipient of this promise of restoration. Not by what you have done, but by God simply choosing you to be adopted into the family of God. That's why in our church, in our theology, we emphasize being chosen by God, being adopted by God, and receiving the promise of the covenant of God. And that's the grace of the Lord that we see in Obadiah that gets passed down to those who are in the family of God. And as spiritual Israelites, as we say, meaning those whose faith is in the Lord, now can claim this promise as their own and long for God's kingdom to reign, as we see in Obadiah in Revelation chapter 11, 15, where it says, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices shouting in heaven, The world has now become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and his reign will forever and ever reign. Church, that's what we long for. As we look out into the world today with conflicts, as we look to our society with injustice, the pain and the sufferings that you and I experience in parenting, in raising, 
in living, in going through work, in all those things, what we are longing for, the hope that we have, is not merely upon our own intellect of getting out of that situation or hoping to move a policy to make things happen or getting things right so that you and I could stand upon our own. But our hope must absolutely rest upon this promise of God that His will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And this morning, if you're not longing for that, then can you really call yourself Christian? Because Christ's follower in the midst of all this must long for heaven so much more. But we ought to first cry out, church, is to join with the fellow saints, saying, how, how much longer, O Lord? How long, O Lord? But also long to say, God, Maranatha, come, O Lord. We need the kingdom of God to come reign. And what this does for us, that now we have the urgency to love the Lord with all our soul and mind and strength. In the war and destruction, we recognize things we hold on to just turn like this, and it all goes away. That's why Jesus said, what does it gain a man if he gained the whole world but forfeit his soul? Parents, I want you to ask that to your children. What's the point of pursuing all these things if they lose their soul? Right? Are we doing things to place them in a place where they could get a scholarship, get a six-figure job, or are we discipling them to love the Lord? Are you holding on to the promise of the covenantal baptism, of the trusting the Lord, that even when our children struggle to walk away, are you holding on to the promise of the Lord? Because it's not about how you parent. It's about the promise of God in their life, right? Do you trust in the Lord as you go into workplaces? It's not merely so you could get to your vacation days and to rest. But God has called you to transform the place you to be by being faithful to the work and long for God's kingdom to come, knowing the justice of the Lord will be done. Do you believe that, church? And I was reading this article this week as we're thinking about the conflicts. There was a Christianity Today article that says, why many Christians want to leave Palestine and why most want. And this writer back in 2020 surveyed many Palestinian Christians at the time, talking about the challenges of being a Christian in this place. And they say many want to leave because the, the presence of Hamas and the Sharia law, the Muslim law, that often persecute Christians. On the other hand, many want to leave because of the oppressive policies of the Jewish settlement and government that makes it so hard for you to exercise your faith and watch atrocities done again and again and again. So while the number of Christians continue to dwindle in this place, they said that many choose to stay and live out their faith in this world. And when asked, why do you stay? This is what one of the Christians said. We have a community, community that understands our mission to witness, to serve, and to advocate for justice and peace. Our role as a church is, is to bring the message of hope as we find it in the gospel. Church, I think that we're, that's where we begin. Why do we gather on Sunday? Why do we worship the Lord on Sunday? Why do we drag our children to come Sunday? Why do we think, teenagers, you're sitting here, why do you think it's important for us to join on Sunday morning? We gather because we believe there's hope of the gospel here together. We wrestle in it. The other day, I was talking to Derek, our executive director. How do we grow and how do we 
carry out the mission of our church, to grow in diverse community, to re-engage the world with renewed dignity that comes from Christ. Is it a program? Is it a campaign? And it's not just Derek and I, your pastors who went before, the staff members, your leadership, and all of you, Christ Central. We wrestle in this together, don't we? And how do we find hope in the midst of injustice, in the midst of brokenness? And we come to the same conclusion time and time again. We start with one another. And that requires humility. Not relying on my own understanding or my own background or what I'm used to. But to lean in and say, I need to learn. I need to grow. I need to see from your perspective and your heart. All the while, as you learn and grow and lean in with humility, learning to love that other person, learning to lay down your own interests, your own desires first to love that other person, being willing to come and share, to pray and seek God together. Church, I believe this is what you're called to. And I think you have done this well throughout the seasons and seasons out in light of Keith Lamont Scott, in light of Brianna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, Joyce Floyd. You have done this in light of our gender committee study, COVID with different policies and rise of hate crimes. We lean in, we learn, and we learn to love one another. This is what it means to be a church of Christ. Amen? Amen. And youth and children, that's what we want you to see and be part of. We want to hear from you and learn too. We want you to know that you are loved and seen just as God has created you. That is the heartbeat of Christ's central church. And ultimately, that's rooted upon our promise that God's kingdom will reign. God's coming back. Do you know that, church? As you walk away from this sanctuary today, anticipate the coming of the Lord. May we be people that cry out, Maranatha, come, O Lord Christ, as we watch the world. Let's pray, church. Let's pray, shall we? Father, that's our prayer as we come, as we watch, as we grieve, as we long for justice to be done. Lord, we pray for God's reign to come, ultimately knowing that, Lord, no amount of human wisdom, human righteousness can save. That's why, Lord, we're here. We are here coming to this table to declare, apart from this table, we don't have our hope. So we thank you, Lord. May you will be done in our lives as it is in heaven. Christ, let me pray. Amen.